Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. Head into our summer months, uh, we really take some time to uh, dig into a, a, a chunk of scripture that sometimes doesn't always get focused on. Last year, we worked through the minor prophets, and this year, uh, you're going to be over, over the moon about it, I promise. Uh, uh, we're going to look at the kings, right? It's a part of Israel's history. It's a part of scripture uh, that we don't always stop and to look into, but there is so much richness there in the story of the kings who led Israel. Uh, I kind of became fascinated with this several years ago as my wife and I were in this uh, time of transition where we knew God was leading us away from the place that we were at in ministry into a new ministry place. And we didn't know what that looked like. And a mentor of mine suggested a book, and I'm going to encourage you to read it if you've not read, uh, not yet read it. It's super short. It's not super complicated. It's called Tell of Three Kings. Uh, and it's a look through scripture at the kingship of Saul, David, and, uh, and then the attempt by Absalom to overtake uh, his father, David. Incredible, incredible read, but God is going down this pathway of the importance of the kings and their influence and their leadership over Israel and what we learn from that. And so for the next couple of months, uh, I think we're in about uh, 12 weeks, we're going to be studying through uh, not all of the kings of Israel, uh, but we're going to look through uh, some of the leaders in Israel and their influence over people. And it's a long, complicated history when you look at Israel and their kings. Um, There's some pretty amazing people in there. You're going to find incredible guys like David, uh, who had incredible leadership over Israel. Uh, you're going to find 42 different kings who led Israel at some point. And their leadership is going to span uh, some part of about 500 years from about 1025 to 586 BC. And it's going to span over six books of the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, and uh, what we, uh, when you look at these books of the Bible, this is like a portion of Scripture that a lot of us are not too familiar with. It's kind of like if you remember going to your grandmother's house. I don't know what your grandmother's house was like. I imagine it was much like my grandmother's house in that uh, there was a den that everybody went to. Uh, there was a dining room that everybody went to. There was a kitchen area that everyone went to. And then there was the Holy of Holies called the formal living room. Everyone know? It's where everything's still wrapped in plastic and nobody ever enters into that room except for on Christmas, right? Uh, and Easter when everybody comes over. Nobody else goes into, uh, into those rooms for any other reason except for big family get-togethers. But I can tell you this much, some of my favorite memories at my grandmother's house are in that room of opening presents, sitting around the Christmas tree. It's great, but, but most of us, like, we don't dare go in there. We don't ever stop. And that's kind of like what these six books of the Old Testament are like for us. We don't always go there. We don't always camp out. We don't spend much time in there. But there's so much truth. There's so much richness. There's so much insight that we 
can gain from Israel's kings. Some of them were godly men that led the nation to godliness, but the sad reality is most of Israel's kings were rebellious and they led the hearts of God's people away from him. And our goal as we study in the next few weeks through this series is not necessarily to find moral lessons from kings who some were good and some were bad and let's be like David and let's not be like uh, Absalom, right? Let's, let, let's be more, like that. that's not the goal. Like there, there, are, there are stories, there are truths, there are lessons that we wanna learn, but we do not want to stop there because if we stop there, we're going to miss the greater story that is a part of this history of Israel and that is this as we study these kings in scripture our goal is to see the king Jesus the ultimate perfect king who would come our goal is to see Jesus in the midst of this history and Jesus in the midst of this story. Today we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you've got a copy of Scripture. And it's going to help us understand how did we get in uh, to this mess of even kings anyway? How, like how did kings come about? Where did this whole concept start for the people of God? Uh, 1 Samuel 8 is going to tell us how it all began. And in 1 Samuel 8, in this, this kind of origin story of the kingship of Israel, uh, we're going to find a couple of warnings that are going to help us from walking down that same pathway that leads us away from God. We're going to find some warnings uh, in this passage that will keep us from going down a pathway that will lead us away from God. First Samuel chapter 8 verse 1 through 5. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first bun was uh, first bun born. There's not a bun. Uh, was Joel. The name of his second uh, Abijah. They were judges and Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, your son, your, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Samuel was a godly man and he had faithfully led the people of God as both a prophet and a judge for many years. He was the last of the judges of Israel and he was the first prophet after Moses and most known for being uh, the judge and prophet who established the monarchy in Israel by appointing both Saul and David as kings over Israel. His parents, you remember, uh, his parents uh, dedicated him to the Lord. They had prayed for children, begged God for a child and said, if you will give us a child, we will dedicate him to the Lord. We will give him to the Lord's service. And so Hannah, when he becomes of age, takes him to the priest, uh, Eli, and he is raised in the temple preparing for service to God. Samuel grows in wisdom. He becomes a prophet and following a uh, Philistine victory over Israel, Samuel is raised up to become a judge and he helps bring a, a, a victory against the Philistines and all of Israel loves him. And he is all kinds of influence. He lives in the city of Ramah and he travels from city to city. And part of his job after, uh, after this leading and this military victory, part of his job now is to travel from city to city, helping to settle disputes that people have among each other. 
And so there's a difference we see between a king and a judge. A judge was somebody who was raised up by God, usually to meet a specific need in a specific crisis that was happening. And when the crisis was over, they went back to what they did before. Judges did not create government. They didn't create systems and and processes and forms of government. They met a specific need in a specific crisis. But a king is very different. A king is a standing official. He creates a government and with that government comes bureaucracy, which can be a blessing and a curse, especially right now as we're all paying our taxes. Amen, right? Uh, A government is, is not always your best friend. And Israel did not have a government. They had judges. God would lead them and God would raise a judge up in time of need to help lead and guide and direct them. He would use prophets to speak to his people. And then he would faithfully lead them in that way. It was not a kingship. But as Samuel gets old, unfortunately, his sons do not follow in his same life of godliness. They begin to use their positions as judges for their own benefit, for their own glory. Uh, They don't uh, seek truth. They seek money for their own benefit. They don't stand on the side of justice. They do what's right for them. And Israel is done. And they demand that that, uh, he give them a king. Here's the problem. Israel already had a king. God was their king. And for years, he had faithfully led Israel and he had faithfully provided for them by by raising up judges in their time of need. And when Israel would turn her back on God, he would raise up a prophet and send the prophet after them to call them back to faithfulness to God. He had been faithful to provide for them time and time again. And how many times Even their need for a judge, even their need for a prophet wasn't because of somebody else. It was because of their own abandonment of God, their own worship of idols. God had been faithful to them. So why in this moment are they begging for a king? Why are they asking him, hey, bring us a king, put someone over us? Well, verse 20 tells us the reason why. They want to be like the nations around them. All the nations around them had kings and monarchies and people of power and influence. And they wanted to be like them. They didn't want to be different. They wanted someone who would go out and would fight their battles for them. And what we see is that there's a little bit more going on here in 1 Samuel with the people of God than what we actually see. Israel at this time has a major enemy, the Ammonites. Their leader, Nahash, was exceptionally evil and wicked. In fact, his name translated literally means snake. How would you like that to be your name? Our king's name, Snake, right? I mean, that, like, this, is, this is a brutal guy. And the fear of Nahash is one of the reasons that Israel is demanding a king. If you read later on in chapter 12, you understand why they're demanding a king in this moment. Because Nahash has invaded a, a city inside of Israel. He has, con- he has conquered it. And he has issued a demand to the people in this city, forcing them to surrender. And this is what he's told the citizens of this city inside of Israel. You have a choice. Surrender to me. And here is your choice. Choose one of the two options as part of your surrender to me. 
you can either die by the sword or have your right eye gouged out. That's the terms of their surrender. So this city in Israel has been overtaken by this Ammonite king. He has said, part of your surrender is this. You as a city have to choose, will you all die by the sword or are you all gonna have your right eye gouged out? And he gives them seven days to decide what are they going to do? Israel has, and and so the city reaches out to the rest of Israel and says, we need help. And so Israel has a foreign king breathing down their neck. He was saying, I'm gonna kill you or I'm gonna gouge your right eyeball out. You tell me which one you want. He's actively planning not to just stop there, but to overtake all of Israel. And in this moment, Israel has a choice to make. They can trust the God who has provided faithfully for them time and time again, the God who led them out of captivity in Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land, who had conquered battle after battle for them. Remember the battle of Jericho? God had faithfully done it before. Why in this moment was God gonna fail them now? And yet they chose not to trust God. They took matters in their own hands and they said, we have a solution. The solution to Nahash, the evil king of the Ammonites is this, we need a king. We're done with this God we can't see, this God we can't talk to, this God that that, that isn't very tangible in our lives. We need a king we can look at, a king that we can see, a king who will go out and who will fight for us, and who will defend us. Verse six, but this displeased Samuel. Their desire for a king upset Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They've rejected their king for an earthly king. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. This is their pattern. This is who they are, Samuel. This is the stiff-necked, rebellious, obstinate people that for some reason I love. Sounds like me. So now obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel is not happy with their demand for a king. He's upset. They want a physical king to fight their battles, a king who would protect them. And so God commands Samuel to obey them and give them what they want. And I think there's a a, a lesson in here for us is that sometimes the Lord will give you what you want even when it's not what you need. How true is that in my life? There are times I just keep persisting down a path and I demand God let me go down it and sometimes God just steps back and says, you want it, big boy? Go try it. See how it works out. Sometimes the Lord will give you what you want even when it is not what you need. And yet even in the midst of it, he will remain gracious enough to bring good from it. 
They wanted a king. God knew what it was going to do. He knew it was only going to end in disaster. And yet he let them walk down the road. He gave them what they want. And in the end, 500 years later, he was going to bring something glorious out of it that would be for the good of all mankind. God reminds Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And the first warning we see is that our rebellion is a rejection of God and his authority in our life. When we choose to rebel against what God has called us to do, when we choose to rebel against the word of God and what he teaches us there, when we choose to rebel against the Holy Spirit as he's leading us in our life, we're choosing to reject God and his authority by saying we think we know what's best, just like Israel did. They didn't want to submit to God. Out of fear, they took matters in their own hands and they rejected God's leadership. They said, you don't know what's, been, what's best for us. I know you provided for us in the past. You've been faithful. You've done all these things. But in this situation, God, you can't handle Nahash. You can't deal with that. We can. So we're going to take over and we're going to tell you what to do. They forgot about all the ways God had taken care of them. They forgot about Moses and how he led them faithfully out of Egypt, how he led them through and into the promised land. They forgot about Joshua who had faithfully led them through to fight the battle of Jericho and how God gave them that victory when all else seemed like it would not work in their favor. And yet God tells Samuel, don't be surprised. This is how they've always acted. It's a pattern of behavior for these people. It's just par for the course. When things get hard, they refuse to trust me. And instead, they lust after other things and they pursue after other things instead of pursuing me. And there's such caution in that truth and that reality for me as well. How often in, in my life when things get tough, when times get hard, that instead of trusting God and his leadership and his authority, I lust after other things and I pursue other things that I think are best. And in verse nine, God commands Samuel, obey their request, give them what they want, but before you do it, make sure they understand what they, they're getting into. Tell them what it's gonna be like to live under the authority of a king. And so verses 10 through 17, I'm not going to read them all. Samuel tells them exactly what a king is going to do. He's going to take your sons for his army. He's going to come in, mom and dad, and he's going to take your sons and he's going to send them off to fight his battles with other countries, whether you like it or not. He's going to appoint people to positions of leadership and authority, and he's not going to consult you and ask you if you think that that's good. He's not going to ask your opinion. He's king. He's going to get to do it. He'll appoint people uh, to take care of his harvest. He'll appoint people to make plans for wars that he thinks is good. And he'll build up his own army on your back. Moms and dads, he'll take your daughters for his own pleasure in whatever way he wants to do it. 
He'll take the best of your, your, your skilled labor and your servants. He'll take them from you and they'll no longer serve you. They'll go serve him and he'll take 10% of everything you have as taxation. Taxes will now be issued on you and they were not at this time. And by the way, if all of that's not bad enough, listen to this in verse 18. Samuel ends his warning with these words in verse, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 18. In that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God says, I will let you go down that road. I love you that much that I'm gonna allow you to walk down that road. I'm gonna allow you to do what you think is best, even though, I know it's not gonna work. The second warning we see here is that God will not force you into obedience to him. He would not force Israel into obedience to him and he will not force you and he will not force me into obedience with him either. For 500 years, Israel is going to feel the pain of what it's like to have a king over them. And not only will they feel the pain of what it's like to have a king, it will be the ineffective leadership of the kings over Israel that is gonna turn their hearts even further in rebellion to God. And it will end up dividing it into two nations. And ultimately it's gonna send all of God's people into exiles as slaves to a foreign nation. Their desire for a king who will defend them against Nahash will send young men and women 500 years later into captivity in Babylon as slaves. Our choices affect the lives of other people. Their choice in this moment to choose a king over God ended up impacting people 500 years later. And God warned them. That's what it's gonna be like. It's your choice to follow. But you're not gonna like it. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They refused to listen. And they said, no, we hear all that. We get it. Kings are not always the best thing. There's gonna be some unpleasant things about it. But listen, we'll have a king and he'll be over us. And we'll be like all the other nations, they say. And our king will judge us. And most importantly, listen to their last words. And he will go out into battle in front of us. They'll have their defender. They'll have their warrior. They refused to listen to Samuel's warning. They're so scared of the Ammonites. They're so scared of Nahash that they demand a physical king who's going to fight for them. And so God gives them what they want even though it's not his desire, even though it's not what he wants. He tells Samuel, give him a king. And King Saul enters the picture. Now let's talk about who King Saul was for a moment. If you go over to chapter nine, First uh, Samuel, next chapter over verses one and two, this is how scripture describes King Saul. There was a man of Benjamin, uh, which is the tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zor, and the son, I'm not even going to do that. Let's just skip on over. A Benjamite, a man of wealth. The tribe of Benjamin was the smallest of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. It sounds like a Disney movie right there. Isn't that where like uh, uh, Gaston, the song, uh, I, I, my mind just goes there, right? From the shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. Saul looked the part. He was tall. He was handsome. Ladies, he was the guy on the cover of all your fantasy novels, right? One shirtless with the rippling muscles and the long hair, right? This is Saul. He's beautiful. He looked the part. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Benjamin was noted from all the rest of the other tribes of Israel. Judges uh, chapter 20 verse 16 describes the men from the tribe of Benjamin as strong as physically capable of incredible acts of strength, and they were exceptionally brave. These men, it says in uh, Judges 12, 16, that the uh, men from the tribe of Benjamin were ambidextrous warriors, meaning that they could fight with both hands. Most of us are either right-handed or left-handed. In the tribe of Benjamin, they could fight and kill with both hands, which is something that only the most athletic of individuals could do. It was the smallest tribe of all the tribes of Israel and yet was considered to be the special forces of Israel. Saul was a force to be reckoned with. He was physically strong. He looked like a king. And Israel had their poster boy king. He looked the part. He was physically strong. He was capable. He could defend them. And while Saul is impressive on the outside, on the inside, he was hollow and he was empty. He would sit on the throne for 45 years. He would ultimately, he would defeat Nahash and defend them from their current fear of the day. But he would sit on the throne for 45 years and in his kingship, he blurred the lines between a king and a priest And as a result from his abuse of power, he slips into a deep depression and ultimately into a psychotic breakdown. And he ends up being an empty shell of a man hiding in a cave in fear. Their perfect looking poster boy king ends up being the ruining of Israel. And I think the third warning we have in this story is that beware of trusting flawed humans rather than a perfect God. How guilty are we of the same thing, of looking to other people to defend us, looking to others to take care of us, looking to others to fight our battles, when in times we ought to look to God instead. We ought to put our trust in him. How often do we trust in ourselves over trusting in God? Israel got what she wanted. She got the outward appearance, great-looking king who was handsome, who was strong, who was capable, who could defend her. But the emptiness on the inside paved the way to send the entire nation into captivity into Babylon. And it's a reminder that when we're left to our own desires, we often enslave ourselves to our own idols. Israel had an idol. It was a king. They wanted a king. They fought for it with everything they had. And yet the king ended up being the one who destroyed their lives. 
I love the description Scripture gives of Saul. Good-looking, strong, tall, handsome. How did Scripture describe Jesus? Isaiah 53, verse 2 through 3 says, speaking of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men, uh, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. And yet on his shoulders comes our salvation. Saul looked the part, made sense. This is what we should do. We need a king. Saul's the perfect one. And yet led the people into destruction. Jesus doesn't necessarily look the part of what we're always looking for. And yet he's the one we can trust. We can trust Jesus or we can trust our plan. But you can't have both. And scripture is clear, Proverbs 14, 12, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. May we be careful trusting in our own plans over Jesus. May we be careful putting our faith and trust into flawed humans, including ourselves, instead of the perfect Savior who will never let us go, who will remain faithful to us even in the times that we are unfaithful to him. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me this week as we live in the play, as we live the gospel out in the places we live, work, and play is that we would heed these three warnings in 1 Samuel 8 and that we may walk intimately with our God and that we would not walk down a road that leads us away from him. Jesus, we thank you for being the great true king, the perfect true king for us. We thank you that we can trust you. And I just pray that for each of us in our life that we will pay attention to the warnings here in 1 Samuel 8. That we will listen that our rebellion is a rejection of God and his authority in our life. May we listen to the warning that sometimes, Father, you will allow us to go, that you will never force us into obedience. That is not who you are. You do not force love. You do not force obedience. You desire us to choose to walk in obedience to you. And that sometimes you let us go down pathways that we think are best. You'll always be there. And may we heed the warning not to trust in flawed humans over our perfect Savior that we would not be like Israel and walk down a pathway that leads us away from you, but we we trust you, would we be faithful to you, would we listen to you, that we would walk more intimately and more closely to you because that's what we need if we're going to make disciples in the midst of the places you have put us. We need you, Jesus. We need your authority, we need your leadership, and we need your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us to that. So help us to walk with you this week. 
And I pray for each of us in this room that you will create divine appointments this week with people in our neighborhoods, people in our workplaces, people in our family, people in our kids' ball teams. Where we won't just get to share the gospel, but we'll get to show, the, show people the gospel through our own lives and our own words and our own actions. May it be true this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.